So something that some of you have learned about me um, is that I am very cheap. Some of you know this. I like to call it frugal. You call it cheap. Uh, I've been known to spend a lot of time at the Dollar Tree. Uh, there's usually at least one time a week ahead of the Dollar Tree. You can find some very good deals. My brother-in-law will tell me that I'm getting ripped off and I'm paying just the same amount, if not more. Um, but uh, I, I feel like I'm getting a, a good deal. Um, I go to the Dollar Tree, but there are things that you should not chintz on in life. For instance, your toilet paper. I mean, come on. You're not going to want to do that. I understand sometimes times are hard, but if you can, don't chintz on toilet paper. Um, my wife sent me to the store one time to get honey. I went to the grocery store and looked at the price. Have you seen the price of honey? Sweet mother, that's a lot of money. So I'm looking at it thinking, I know where I can get honey. Well, the Dollar Tree sells what they call honey. And it looks it's just like the same little huggy bear, right? It's got the same, everything looks the same. And so I bought it thinking, I just saved about eight bucks right here. So I get home and I give the, uh, the huggy bear thing to Heidi. And she didn't look at it right away because it looked the same. She's got her tea and she put it in. It's like, man, it doesn't have any taste. Put some more in. It doesn't have any taste. And she's like putting the whole bottle. And then she looks at it. Apparently, the Dollar Tree, it's not honey. It's honey-flavored syrup. So you cannot chintz on toilet paper or, or honey. Uh, yes, I am very cheap. And I see what I can get away with. In fact, actually, I found that I can get away with uh, vanilla wafers. Anybody like vanilla wafers in here? Well, if you like them, you can get them at the Dollar Tree and your family will not know. You'll save yourself some money. They are the exact same thing. There are times when you can spot something that is authentic and times when you can't. I thought today we'd do a little bit of a taste test. Matthew's going to bring up um, some soda. Now, do we have any diet soda drinkers in here? You, you like diet soda? Do you think you could tell the difference between real diet Pepsi and fake diet Pepsi? You think you could do it? That's <laughs> fake. Well, see, I have up here, I have Pepsi, which we would call the authentic one, right? Uh, and then I have Refresh Diet Cola. Now, I looked for the, the Dr. Pepper and then the, what do they call it, Dr. Peppy or something like that? Um, yeah, and what is it? Mr. Pip. Mr. Yeah, well, there's a Mr. Pip there. Um, so, now I know my wife drinks a lot of diet soda. Oh, yeah. You heard that fizz. It's, from, it's good stuff. So, uh, would you like to take a taste test? Would you like to try it out? Sweetheart, would you like to? I'll, I'll bring it to you. I'll bring it to you. Would you like to try? Okay. All right. So we're going we're gonna to pour this out, see what we can do here. All right. I got four little cups and uh, I'm going to. All right. So it seems as if I tricked one and not the other. The one that you thought was Diet Pepsi was actually cola. And you nailed it. Now, it's because she drinks a ton of it. I mean, she might as well take it through the IV. She can, she can spot the, the authentic one. From, and we could do this with a number of different things. See, we like to think that we can identify things that are fake. And things that are authentic. We, we think, well, I can notice, I can see this from like a mile away. We want to be able to spot a counterfeit, but it's not always true that you can spot a counterfeit. Sometimes it takes time. You notice they were taking multiple sips. Sometimes it takes time to figure out if something is genuine or authentic. And of course, don't you desire people in your life to be authentic? 
Don't you want people in your life to be genuine? Yes, of course you desire it from other people, but shouldn't we desire it in ourselves as well? Today we're going to be looking back into the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be taking a closer look at this guy, Nehemiah, to figure out, is Nehemiah the real deal or is he not? Is, is he genuine or is he fake? Is he authentic guy? Is he just putting on a show? So in order to figure that out, we're going to jump into chapter 5 of Nehemiah. And as I read this chapter over and over and prayed on it and researched it uh, and, and, and looking at it, it seemed to me that the entire chapter went together. There are commentators that have split it up and I see the reasoning behind it. But today I want to look at the entire chapter. I know it's a lot. We're not going to go verse by verse through it. We're going to summarize some of it. And what we're going to see is we're going to see that Nehemiah, surprise, surprise, he finds out that there's a problem. Seems to be almost every time we turn around, Nehemiah sees a problem. And so like he does in the past, he comes up with a solution. However, the solution doesn't just end there. We're going to see towards the end of this chapter that he's going to lead his people by example. So we're going to find out, is he genuine or not, or is he authentic? What we find out from chapter 4 to chapter 5 is there's actually a pretty drastic change. In chapter 4, we notice that they were facing issues, and the issues came from outside of the camp. There were, there were mockings, and there were threats, and they were all things that were external. In fact, every problem that we've seen so far have been from outside of the camp. Things are going to be different now. They're going to start facing internal pressure, not just external. Look at verse 1. Now there was a great outcry of the people, of their wives, against two, against their brothers. There was an outcry from the people. Outcry is the same word used to describe the complaint of the Israelites while they were in Egyptian oppression. See, they were upset. And they weren't just upset at Sam Ballot and Tobiah, as we had talked about last week. But they were upset at their own Brothers and sisters. See, the situation that we have here is there was an exodus out of captivity and about 40,000 people came back to the land. And they returned and they bought full heartedly into the task at hand. And that was, first of all, to rebuild the temple and now to rebuild the wall. So they're involved in this task. But in doing so, they've neglected other parts of their lives. One commentator puts it like this. He says, according to chapter 4, verse 22, which we looked at last week, Nehemiah had asked the workers to stay in Jerusalem. Remember, he said, stay up. I want you to stay here day and night. We're going to work with a weapon in one hand um, and, and, and something else in the other, right? And so he says, don't go back to your villages. This must have caused shortage of workers for the harvest, as he says. The extra labor on the wall no, no doubt affected the efficiency of the harvest and the income many families normally would have received from working in the harvest. In short, the economic situation was more critical because the people dedicated so much labor to the wall. They had given their all to this project, and so other things had fallen behind. And you would hope that those that were better off than they were, that the rich people of the world, that would have helped them, but it's completely opposite. Instead of helping him, they lend him money, which was okay, but then they start charging him interest on it. They, these people now had to mortgage their fields and their vineyards just simply to get grain to be able to eat. So they had a, they had a lack of money. And to compound that in verse 3, we see that there is a famine in the land. To compound on that, they not only had all of that and the famine, but also the king had a tax on them that they had to pay. 
things were not looking good for the people. They were hungry. They were working hard. And now their families are starting to be separated. Look at verse 5. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children, like their children. They're just saying we're the same people. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. See, the rich are making it hard for those that are less fortunate. They they, they were having to sell their their, their kids into slavery. I mean, can you imagine? It sounds awful, right? Now, it was not unheard of in those times to have your children be hired to help pay off of your debt, but not as a slave, as a hired hand. See, it was forbidden for a Hebrew brother to have another Hebrew brother as a slave. One commentator described, he says, in times of economic distress, families would borrow funds using family members as collateral. I know it sounds terrible. But an Israel who fell into debt, however, would serve his creditor as a hired man. He was hired, he wasn't a slave, and he was to be released in the seventh year. This was a sabbatical year. And also the same with land, by the way. In the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the land would go back to the original owner. These were desperate times. These were times where the people are, they're, they're upset, they're crying out for help. And apparently what we find out is that Nehemiah was unaware of the whole thing. Look in verse 6. He says, then I was very angry. He was angry. If he had known about this already, if, if, if this was just something that was an ongoing issue, he probably would say, well, I was kind of annoyed because it, it kept going. But no, he was surprised by the whole thing. He said, I'm angry by what has just happened. Of course, we understand this emotion. We talked about it last week. Sam Ballot, it said he was angry when he found out that the people were working for Yahweh, Almighty, Almighty God. He was angry. He, the text translated it as Furious. It's the same exact word. I'm not sure even why in the same translations the word go from furious to angry, but it's the same exact word. Nehemiah found out and he was hot. What we've come to find out about Nehemiah is we can expect some emotions from this guy. He's kind of like an emotional roller coaster, right? I mean, look at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, when I heard of these words, and by the way, the words that he heard of were the reports back from Jerusalem that the, that the city was, was in dire straits. Everything was burned down and broken down. What did he do when he heard about it? He says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. He's an emotional guy. It affected him, even so much so that when he was doing his job in front of the king, the king looked at him and said, what is your problem? Why are you so sad? It affected everything that... He was doing. In the last chapter we looked at, he was upset at how his people were being mocked. And he asked God for justice. In this instance, he's angry. He's furious. And I wonder, is he wrong for doing that? Is he wrong for having those emotions, that anger? I want to look at just a few passages from the New Testament, from the Gospels that are going to show us and give us our answer. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It's not up on the screen. This is a situation where Jesus was around the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're always trying to mess him up, always trying to get him to, to, to do things that were contrary to who he was, right? And he says this, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The people were asking him, is it lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus looked at him with anger. Like, like, really? That's the question you're going to ask? I'm about to heal a guy, and that's the question you're going to ask. He was angry. And of course, we all know 
the story from John chapter 2. Remember, he walks into the temple. His father's house. He, he sees what they're doing to his father's house. They're making a mockery out of it by making it a marketplace. And what does he do? He starts tossing tables and throwing the money changers out of the temple. He was angry. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4.26? He says, be angry and do not sin. See, anger is not always a sin. Sometimes it is necessary to express indignation against social injustice. See, his anger was a measure of his concern or his love. But he doesn't just stew on it. It's controlled and it's constructive because he goes on. This reaction. Because if he's consistent with who he's been all the way throughout this entire book, we know it's coming, right? If there's a problem, he's going to come up with a solution. That's what we see in verses 8 through 13. Again, we're not going to read each and every verse, but what we see is he confronts them. He confronts them with what they're doing, and he takes it to a small group first, and then he takes it to a large assembly, which is interesting because Charles Spurgeon says this, Some people are just deaf to the voice of justice until it's repeated loudly by thousands of others. Here's what he says. He says, there you have an issue. In the in New American Standard, in the King James Version, it says you are exacting usury on the people. NIV, which is probably what you're reading, says that you are charging people interest. See, it wasn't just that they were loaning money. That, that's okay. It was even okay to take a pledge on that money and to, and to have people working to pay off their debt. That was fine, but they were charging interest, which what we understand by the Mosaic Law in Exodus, that's strictly forbidden. And it wasn't just the interest. I mean, it was the issue of the dire straits that the people were in. I mean, look at the situation that they were in. They were simply being taken advantage of. See, taking pledges, as one author says, to assure repayment was allowed in the law. But it was regulated. One could not accept a millstone as collateral since that was necessary for a necessary tool for the family's daily bread. Nor could a creditor just enter a borrower's house and seize anything he, that he wants. Nor can he keep his, his jacket as a pledge overnight, thus depriving one of the protections of the cold. See, the principle involved in these rules, as the author continues to say, which Nehemiah was applying, is the importance of generosity and kindness towards those in need. The people were just being taken advantage of. What does Nehemiah say about that in verse 9? He says... This is not good. Some of your translations just basically says, it's not right. And he says it needs to stop. I mean, he can hardly believe that this is going on. Especially, I mean, you, you, can, you can believe it, you know, the, the external pressure, but the, the pressure within, or take advantage of their own people. And he basically asks them, do you not fear God? To walk in the fear of God means to live in awe and of devotion to God and with kindness and integrity towards men. I mean, forget that it's just downright mean to what, what they're doing and hurtful to take advantage of other people. But Nehemiah wants to appeal to a higher motive at this point. You, you may not do the right thing for the sake of your brothers, but perhaps you will be led to do so because of your love and your respect and, yes, your fear for God. And so what does he do? He doesn't let him stay. He calls them to action. Look at verse 11. He says, give back to them this very day. Their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, the money. All He says, give it all 
back. You are causing these people to be in poverty. What you're doing is you're splitting families. You're making it difficult for them to get anything, any amount of grain. He says, give it back. How do they react in verse 12? He said, okay, we'll give it back. I wonder if that was a surprise to Nehemiah. <laughs> I mean, he calls them out. He says, give it back. They're like, okay, we'll do it. Nehemiah being a smart guy, look at verse 12. He says, yeah, we'll, we'll give it back. He doesn't stop there. I love this. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. He says, okay, yeah, you, you said you're going to do it, but guess what? Let's make it official. You need to put, make, take a pledge and make a, a promise. A promise. See, the, the three major translations all translate this word at the end as promised. The literal translation is just word. He wants them to, to, to give their word for what they were doing. They, they need to be taken by their word and, and held by their word. And hopefully they follow through on their word. That's important, right? Important then, it's important in our society today. When someone gives their word, it's important that they follow through with it. And, and Nehemiah says, you need to follow through with it. Or in verse 13, he says, I hope that you're shaken out. He stands up and he takes his, his robe and he just shakes it out. That you'll be taken outside the camp, not even part of us anymore. It's an interesting situation. We summarize 13 verses here very quickly. The people are being taken advantage of by their own people. Nehemiah finds out, he gets angry, he calls the people to action, and the people agree. And of course, Nehemiah asks them for a vow. So we're going to move on into the final section, which is verses 14 through 19. And what we're going to do in these verses is we're going to get a glimpse of Nehemiah. Beyond what we've already seen of who he is, we're going to see and figure out, is Nehemiah really who he claims to be? And which is going to be over an extended period of time. It, and it's going to be over a time where he very well could have taken advantage of the people. We're going to find out, okay, who is this guy really? From this account, I think you and I could be challenged in how we live. So let's take a look. And the, the, the remaining parts of this chapter, verses 14 through 19, as I mentioned already is a section that seems to be inserted after the fact. Okay, it, it's not going on while the wall was being built. Yet, yeah, it was written kind of during the same time, but this was also when his, uh, uh, Nehemiah was governor. Look at verse 14, and, and we'll, we'll figure this out. It says, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years... Neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So he's talking about an extended period of time. A period of over 12 years or about 12 years. Could he be talking about the time when they built the wall? Well, yes, that was, that was part of it. Because, I mean, it was a large project. It involved a lot of people, a lot of sacrifice. But what we're going to find out, we're not going to spend any time on it right now. But in chapter 6, we're going to find out that this amazing project was finished in an astounding 52 days. So the discussion that he's having is, is, is something that happened over a long period of time, over 12 years. So yes, the project was going on during that time, but it continued. And so he's writing about the current situation and he's letting us in to see exactly how he reacted and what he did. So at the end of verse 14, he states that he and his men, they didn't take an allowance. See, because of the situation Nehemiah was in, he was a governor. He was a, had a high position of honor. He was entitled to a certain amount of food. We're going to see that in verse 18, but that's going to be later. 
We're going to see how much food he actually got. But see, in order to get that food, the food had to come from somewhere. The food didn't just fall out of the sky. And where do you think it had to come from? Well, it had to come from people. The people had to help him out with that. What we find out is that Nehemiah was going to have none of it. Look at verse 15. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides silver. Even the servants domineered the people. But I didn't do so. I didn't do it because of the fear of God. Look, he understood it would burden the people. It would take silver from their pockets and bread from their mouths. The people had already been through so much in their lifetime. They're hurting. They have, they have no money. They're, they're, they're spread, out, spread out as a family, which ironically enough, had they stayed in Babylon in captivity, at least they would have had food. At least they would have had been together. Of course, that reminds you of the Israelites in, when they were in bondage to Egypt, right? Now, see, they, they had food. But normally this food, some of it would be taken because the governors would come and take it for their food allowance. They were being separated because they had to pay off their debts. But Nehemiah said, you know what? No, I'm not going to do it. He recognized the burden. He cared for the people so much, but even more so, he cared and he feared God. The depth of reverence for God's will determines our decisions. What Nehemiah was reminding of, us of is something we can find in 1 John 3.17. It's this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It looks like Nehemiah is who he has portrayed himself out to be. But there's even, even, even more to be found out about him. See, Nehemiah was organizing this big project. He's encouraging the people to get in it. Stay the night. Get, you know, put yourself in danger and, and, and do all this work and, and asking him to sacrifice. But I wonder, is he willing to do the same exact thing? Look at verse 16. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. The answer is yes. Of course, Nehemiah didn't just ask him to work. He also worked as well. And I can imagine he's writing this maybe while he's overlooking the finished wall. Because he says, this wall? Maybe he's even leaning up against it. Maybe he's in the court. Maybe he can see it. And he says, yeah, I remember this project because I was a part of it. I too worked. He was remembering how God provided them and, 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 and protected for them. He's probably standing in awe of the project and all that had happened. The fact is that he worked just like the people did. He didn't stand up on his ivory tower and, and start uh, uh, yelling out instructions. No, he got down in his hands and he was dirty and his life was in danger, which we're going to see as we get into chapter six next time. But see, it wasn't just him that got involved. It wasn't that just him that was acting in a way that was, 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 was just great and genuine. It was also his servants were, which were under his command. See, the servants of his predecessors, what does it say? It says that they took advantage of the people as well, oppressed them, and the Lord entered over them. His servants did the very opposite. They joined in. They supported the people. They didn't take advantage of the situation. It's looking like Nehemiah is a stand-up guy. <clears throat> Verses 17 and 18 goes on to describe how he had food and he would host people at his house. 150 people at a time. He would host them. And again, he repeats, yeah, you know what? I hosted them, but I didn't take any of the king's allowance. He could have demanded it, 
But Nehemiah was guided by principles of service rather than opportunity. See, because what we know and we understand is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. 1 Corinthians verse 10 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He was within his rights. But he knew, as he repeats again in verse 18, that all of this was a heavy burden to the people. And of course, he loved and he feared God. So I wonder, with this whole account, what in the world can we take from this? I mean, it's a great story. It's a great account of Nehemiah and the people and what they went for. Yet what is in it for us? Well, I, I do believe there are a number of things that we can take from this. And I think it comes down to how we Act and who we are as people. First, before God, then before our brothers and sisters, and then finally to the world. See, there's one thing that the world craves. And I believe it's one thing that the world doesn't see too often it's authenticity. They want people to be real, to, 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 to be who they say they are, they want them to be authentic. I love that word, authentic. I love everything it speaks of. It's not a mysterious word. You understand what I mean by it. Something that comes across pure. Something that I desire in myself and I desire from the people around me as well. Authenticity. Its meaning is simple, but to live it out in practicality, I'll tell you, becomes difficult. Because it means that you're genuine, you're reliable, you're not fake, that you're true and accurate, you're not just made to look like something. It implies being trustworthy. It speaks of character. You know, they say that you are who you are when you are alone and nobody else is around. You've heard of that, right? I'll be honest, I'm not sure I 100% agree with it. I understand the intent behind it. But I don't quite buy into it as a cold, hard fact because I know there are times, and hopefully this afternoon, before we uh, leave for Lily State meet, that I get to take a nap. And I'm looking forward to it. Are there times when you just want to be alone and you want to sleep? Well, yeah, of course. Does that make you a slugger? No. It means you need some rest. There are times when I'm alone that, you know what, I would love to just sit back, kick out the recliner, and turn on some sports. I don't care what it is. It could be NASCAR, it could be golf, it could be hockey, whatever. Just it doesn't make me a sports addict. Oftentimes when I'm alone, I like to read. But I'll be honest, just because I like to read doesn't make me a scholar. There are times when I'm alone that... And, You've probably been there that you're just kind of lost and confused about life and you're wondering, what's going on? Well, that doesn't make me a flake either. In fact, there are times when I'm alone and if we're honest, I'm hoping you do this, maybe it's not just me. Do you ever vent out loud when you're alone? Hope that nobody's around. Just, ah, right? I mean, there's occasion when I do that. doesn't make me a crazy, angry lunatic. I think the spirit behind the statements gets to the consistency of our character. The question comes up, who are we? Who, who am I, really? I mean, who are we? It comes to consistency in character. Are you who you claim to be, whether you're in public or whether you're alone? Are you indeed authentic? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to, as we work our way towards the end of this, is we're going to see four character, characteristics from Nehemiah that I believe we can emulate to provide and to prove 
that hopefully we are authentic. The first one is this. Nehemiah passionately stood up for what was right. He saw things that were not right, and he stood up for them. Sometimes you and I, we simply need to stand up for things that are right. We need to make a stand. Now, it could be in your workplace, and I know we don't want to cause waves, and, 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 and we don't want to uh, you know, get people upset, and I'm not telling you to intentionally do that by any means. But there may become a day at your workplace when you have to stand up for what is right. That's not a bad principle, but... The text is actually not referring to that. It's not referring to people that you work with. It's referring to people that you worship with. The people in our passage today were the people of Yahweh. They were believers. See, with our interactions with each other, we can become way too easygoing in how we deal with each other. The prevailing thought becomes, you know what? I want to protect the unity of the church, so I'm not going to say anything. And in some cases, that's absolutely right. For instance, if you're just going to complain about the, 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 the color of the carpet, or you want to say something about the sanctuary lights, which, by the way, looks great. But here's the issue. If we get lackadaisical with how we handle Scripture and God's Word, and God's Word becomes compromised, then we need to stand up for the integrity of God's Word. We must. That would be the right thing. If someone in our midst is being taken advantage of, someone in our congregation... We should stand up for them, stand up for what is right, and help that person. Because you know the principle, right? That it's always right to do the right thing. And so we should passionately stand up for what is right. And there may be a case when anger is completely appropriate. There may be. See, when God's word gets distorted, when God's people get abused and attacked, and when the church comes under attack, guess what? It should make us angry. Listen to this from J. Vernon McGee. He says, we ought to be stirred up to a righteous anger when we see something wrong in the church. We should not mighty call her the wrongdoer and shut our eyes to his sin. Many people say, we just won't, don't want to disturb things. He says, you don't. I like this. He comes out. He says, my friend, you had better do something because the devil has moved in on you and he will divide you. We need courage today. We need conviction today. The church no longer has a good name in the world, and the world is passing it by. The spiritual movement that is emerging is largely outside of the organized church. Christians have just been merely playing church. The controlled group in the church has been having a good time, but they are not reaching the lost, and the world is passing by uninterested. It's time we take a stand. And sometimes that stand is righteous anger. We can take a stand at work. We need to take a stand in our churches. There are times when we need to take a stand at home. How important is it, the things that occur occur at your home, around your table? They're vital. So much of the dysfunction in our country right now goes back to the failure at home. And that's not to say there isn't plenty of blame to go around, because there is for the moral condition of our country and the world. But the home is a foundational battleground. If we only stand up for what is right in one area in our lives, let it be at home. Our families need to see that we are who we are no matter where we are. That the principles that we stand on outside of the home begin at home and that the priorities that we will be following come from God's word and not the prevailing ideas of the world that we live in. We need to stand for what is right. That's what Nehemiah did. He took a stand. 
Yes, he got angry, but he didn't stay there. He moved into action. The second thing that Nehemiah did is he helped in areas where he could help. We don't, we don't have to make it any, any harder than that, any more difficult than that. He was the leader of this group. I'm sure he had his limits of what he could do and his, his talents, what, he, could, what we, he was able to accomplish. But he didn't ignore the situation. He knew he could help out here, and so he helps out. I fear if we ignore a situation where right is being compromised, then we are no better than the offenders. We cannot stick our heads in the sand while the world spirals out of control towards an eternity absent of its creator. We should indeed be active. Christianity, my friends, not, not, not Christianity. I don't speak about Christianity in the way that people say we're a Christian nation. I'm talking about Christianity, about Christians, about people that, that know and love Jesus Christ as their Messiah, who are fans and not followers. See, Christianity is a, not a passive thing. Christianity is not a, a punch your ticket to heaven and sit back and enjoy the ride. Christianity is not, okay, well, now I need to find the coolest church so that we can have the most fun. See, Christianity is following Jesus Christ, following his example. And he was anything but passive, if you know anything about Christ and the Gospels. See, he sought out people who needed help. He called out to those in need. He fed the hungry. He was active. And guess what? He calls us to be the same exact thing when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He says, do what you can do. Help where you are able to help out. See, Nehemiah was willing to stand up for what was right. He was passionate about it. He did what he could do. Yet there's another thing that jumps out to me about Nehemiah. And that was this, that he was a generous guy. Let's take into consideration how in the world Nehemiah got to the position he was at. I mean, all of a sudden, he's in charge of a big project, right? How did, how did he get there? He volunteered. Nehemiah had a cush job with the king. Okay, he was protected. He was making good money. He didn't have to go where he went. He didn't have to go back. He didn't have to make that several-month journey, put himself in danger, and have all the stresses of this project. He could have stayed where he was. But guess what? He volunteered. As I already stated, he hosted 150 people at his table. But look at what he prepares for him. Look at verse 18. He says, Now, that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. See, that was each day. In a week, there was seven ox and 42 sheep. And 42 choice sheep. That's a lot of food. Every single day. This must have cost a lot of money, but guess what? It didn't come from the people. It didn't cost the people a cent. It came from his pocket. He didn't take anything. He shared openly and willingly about this. And I'm sure he thought to himself, look, if I'm asking people to sacrifice, then I better be willing to do it as well. And he proved it. He was generous with what he had. I wonder how generous we are. How generous do we get with our stuff, with our, with our finances? Well, you could say, well, you know, I, 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 just have, I just have enough. Well, it's never enough, right? I mean, we know that. It, it's, it's never enough. I mean, that's why we chase promotions and we try to get raises so that we can have more stuff. How tight do we hold on to our stuff and our finances? Do we see it for what it is? Do we recognize it as what it is? It's a gift from God. I wonder how willing are we to help those 
who are in need. To bless others with what we have been blessed with. Nehemiah says, you know what? I'm willing. I'll do it. I'll set the example. He was a very, very generous guy. He stood up for what was right. He helped where he could help. I mean, Nehemiah is just an interesting character. I mean, he's an interesting character because the only things we know of Nehemiah are the things that we see in this book. We don't see him anywhere else in Scripture. He's not mentioned at all. So all we have to figure out his character is this book. And for us, we have these first six chapters. He's been through a lot of situations. And yet what we find about him is that he has been consistent. He's been consistent all throughout it. He's a passionate guy. He's selfless. He's lovely. He, he loves God. He's generous. He's a hard worker. He's a smart guy. He's this way all the way throughout the book, as we're going to continue to see as we finish this before summer. He was consistent in his character, whether he was around people or whether he was in his own private residence. See, when Nehemiah realized the problem for the people, what was going on, remember, he didn't try to take advantage of them even more than they already had been. This was a very public thing. This is something that people could put their finger on where they could point to Nehemiah and go, okay, yeah, 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 he's, he's a good guy. The part that's not so obvious and that causes me to reflect on myself is what we find there in verses 14 through 18 is that he didn't take what was rightfully his inside his own residence. This wasn't a public thing. Remember, that section that he wrote is after the fact. He wasn't going out and telling everybody, look what I've done. But he had to put it in there to show that he was also an example. He didn't take what was rightfully his because he loved the people. More importantly, he loved God and feared him. And I, I tell you what, that's amazing to me. He made these decisions when no one else could see them. He could have taken the food. Nobody would have blamed him because it was rightfully his. Yet he didn't make that decision. In private, where no one else could see except for Almighty God. He didn't do it. Yet he shares with the people. And he shares it with us now as the example. That he was the same in public as he was in private. He was the same now. And he's going to be the same after that. He set the example. Here's what I found. In a world full of counterfeits. In a world full of counterfeits that craves authenticity. You and I need to be the anomaly. We need to be different. We need to be the one that is genuine and real, not perfect. Nowhere in this book does it say anything about Nehemiah being perfect. He's got our faults, his faults, we have ours. But he was genuine about who he was. I want to leave you with a story. This is a funny story. A man is being tailgated by a woman who is in a hurry. He comes to an intersection and when the light turns yellow, he hits the brakes. He doesn't peg it, he hits the brakes. The woman behind him goes ballistic. She honks her horn at him. She yells her frustration in no uncertain term. She rants and she gestures. She tells him he's number one. While she's in mid-rant, someone taps on her window. She looks up and sees a policeman. He invites her out of her car, takes her to the station where she's searched and fingerprinted and put in a cell. Out. After a couple hours, she's released and the arresting officer gives back her personal effects saying... I'm very sorry for the mistake, ma'am. I, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, using bad gestures and bad language. Uh, I, I did notice, however, the what would Jesus do bumper sticker. 
The Choose Life license plate holder. The Follow Me to Sunday School window sign. The Christian Fish emblem on your trunk. And naturally, I assume, you had stolen the car. <laughs> it's funny, right? But here's what the world gets tired of. The world gets tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars. Christian fish signs on their trunks. Christian books on their shelves, Christian stations on their radio, Christian jewelries around their necks and videos for their kids, Christian magazines for their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. People are sick of it. Look, we want to see authenticity in, in the people around us, don't we? That's the change that we want to see in the world that we live in. However, we cannot make people change. We cannot make them do anything as much as, man, we want them to. But So it comes down to this. We must then be the change that we wish to see in the world. We need to set the example because you are the only one that you can control. So this is the challenge that we leave with. To stand up for what is right. Passionately stand up for what, what is right. Help out where you can help out. Be active. Get involved. Be generous. Don't hold on to what you have. It's a gift anyway. And be consistent no matter what. Be the change you desire to see in the world around you. Be authentic in everything. Let's pray. Our God, what a passage that we have looked at today. What a challenge that we have, Lord, to be authentic in a world full of counterfeits. Lord, help us not to be those counterfeits. Lord, help us to go out into this world. And Lord, nowhere in your scripture have you asked us to be perfect. You've called us to be faithful. Lord, you haven't even called us to, called us to be successful. You're going to handle that. Lord, you just want us to be faithful. Lord, help us to be faithful in the small things. Father, help us to stand up for what is right. Help us to be generous, Lord. Help us to help where we can help out and be consistent in our character no matter where we are, no matter who we're around. Lord, what a challenge that is. How hard it is, but Father, through you, nothing is possible. And so I pray that for each one here today, Lord, that they will leave this place seeking to live for you in an authentic and real way, that we may draw others to you. Lord, we thank you for this. And we ask your blessing in your son's precious name. Amen.